Well, good morning. I'm sure you're looking forward to the free movie and the popcorn at Fall Festival. It's going to be a great festival. Please do come, bring your family, bring friends, bring neighbors. Uh, That's just in a few weeks. Uh, It's an interesting time here in British Columbia. There are about 566 wildfires burning the last time I checked. That's a lot of wildfires. The province has declared this state of emergency, and of course there are firefighters that have come from other provinces, from other countries. Uh, the, The army has been called in to assist in the effort. Smoke hangs over the lower mainland. We can't avoid it. It affects our vision, our breathing, our health, our daily exercise. But the middle of this last week, I just felt that I needed to get out and exercise. So I went to a park and I ran. And I came back, you know, uh, tasting the smoke in my mouth and my eyes were watering. And my wife just looked at me and said, didn't you read the health advisory alert? Didn't you listen when they said avoid strenuous exercise outdoors? Did you think it would be any different for you? And I just kind of hung my head. The reality of the wildfires is unavoidable. They have our attention. What would God say to us if he had our attention? We're in Exodus chapter 20. If you pick up a Bible in the seat back in front of you, it's page 61. The Lord will refer to the Lord by his Hebrew name, Yahweh. The Lord has saved Israel by grace from dehumanizing, life-draining slavery in Egypt. Through mighty acts in Egypt, through the parting of the Red Sea, he has delivered the people of Israel out of bondage. Yahweh has led them in the wilderness to Mount Sinai. They're at the base of Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. And this grumbling, stumbling people is to become a kingdom of priests. All the earth is the Lord's, but he's chosen them for his own treasured possession. Now, if they're going to be this kingdom of priests, if they're going to be a light to other peoples, they need to hear God's word, God's revelation to them. So the mountain, Mount Sinai, it trembles. There's thunder and lightning. A cloud of smoke descends upon the mountain. The people, they're awestruck. There's a sound of a loud trumpet blast, and it it comes near. It grows louder. And, And as it grows louder, the people tremble. The mountain itself is trembling. And when the sound is at its most intense level, Yahweh, the Lord, he speaks. He has their attention. His awesome, glorious presence is unavoidable. What does he say? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. These words are known as the Ten Commandments. The Hebrew language refers to them as the Ten Words. These ten words, they're at the center of the first five books of the Bible. They're the focus of the first five books, referred to as the Pentateuch. In fact, everything that we read in the Law of Moses and the Prophets grows out of these ten words. They're foundational. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus speaks to their foundational role. A lawyer comes up to him and asks a question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, and he recites Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's a summary of the first four words. And then he goes on. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18, a summary of the last six. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, Jesus says that the moral teaching of the Old Testament, it comes down to these two commandments that are based on the ten words. Yahweh's ethic, God's ethic, is truly an ethic of love. The first four words teach the people of Israel how to love Yahweh, how to keep the vertical relationship with God alive. The last six words teach the people of Israel how to relate to each other, how to keep their human relationships healthy and alive. So God, he provides the integration of the cosmic and social orders, as it were. The will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. He he gives them a framework to live by. Do we need it? Do we need the framework that God provides We live in in an interesting time. There are many in our society that talk about the development of a new morality. As if we were to live in a new way. Something that's new, something that would not be found in ancient wisdom or based on divine revelation. Something that we would come up with. Each person, they would say, 
has within himself or herself the capacity, the, the capability to discover truth on their own without consulting divine wisdom. As a result, as a result our, our age has become one of uh, just following the vibe of the day. The loudest voices win the day. There's this voice of the majority, and if you don't listen to the voice of the majority, then you are shamed into silence. This isn't really something all that new. C.S. Lewis, he talked about this during the time of the Second World War, and on a radio program he said, during the Second World War, those that attempt to develop a new morality are quacks. (laughs) His words, not mine. Here's a simple example. I come from a family of four boys. We four brothers, we liked making model car kits when we were kids, plastic model car kits. We would do it together. One of my brothers, he will remain unnamed, he didn't have the patience to read the instructions. So he would just start gluing pieces together thought he could do it on his own without reading the instructions of the one that had created that model car kit. Inevitably, he would miss some steps and he would glue the wrong pieces together. And then time after time, in frustration, he would just smash the whole kit. As a younger brother, I would look at his example and say to myself, I don't think that works. If I wanted to risk my life, I would say, why didn't you read the instructions? But I knew that if I asked that, then I would look like that smashed model car kit. So stayed quiet. Wisdom. In our society, we are challenging the revelation given by our creator. And we're paying a huge price individually, in our families, in our society as a whole. The evidence is unavoidable. So, we need to recognize that the ten words given by Yahweh are his gift to us. He has given them to us out of love. At their essence, they're they're not just things that we should do or shouldn't do. God is revealing who he is and how he has designed life to be. They're not this exhaustive dissertation that would take years to read and understand. They're more like an executive summary, guidelines. One more thing. Who's hearing the voice of God at the base of Mount Sinai? The uniform witness of the Old Testament is that each person at the base of the mountain is hearing God's word. Listen to what Moses says to the people of Israel when they're ready to enter the promised land. He reviews the ten words in Deuteronomy 5 and then ends by saying this, verse 22 of Deuteronomy 5. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So all the people were hearing God's voice. It's an important point. Just as Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses had heard the voice of God. How does God begin? Verse 2. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he identifies himself. He says, hey, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the one who was, who is, who always will be. I define what it means to exist. Secondly, I'm your God. I I chose you. I revealed myself to you. I gave myself to you. Thirdly, I am the one who brought you out of the house of slavery. You were were non-status slaves in Egypt. You weren't a people, but now you're my people. You were bound, you were serving a hostile power, but now you've been set free to know me and to walk with me. So in the preamble, Yahweh just presents himself as the one who loves and saves by grace. He presents himself as the one who loves and saves by grace. You see, Israel's relationship with Yahweh, it never began with a series of commandments, with a series of do's and don'ts. It began with God out of love revealing himself to Israel. It never began with Israel trying to earn his favor. It began with God's love and his grace. It began with salvation from slavery. God saves them out of slavery, and now he comes to them at the mountain and says, I am Yahweh, your God. Will you listen? Will you follow? Will you be loyal to me? God does this as a loving father. I'm a father. I have three daughters. My youngest daughter, she is traveling to California as we speak. She is uh, on a trip with three friends from Austria. She's adventurous. She likes to go into the unknown. She likes to just kind of experience things. So that's not the way that she normally makes her trips, at least based on my observation, she just kind of launches out there without a lot of planning. But three friends from Austria have come, and so she thought to herself, well, I better plan this a bit better. I better make sure that this is a good journey. I better prepare for the journey. So she, she called me on Monday. She said, Dad, you were just there. You were in California. Can you tell me where I should go? Do you, do you have some maps? So out of love for my daughter... I share every key insight that I have. Now, I don't overwhelm her with information. I don't talk about every town that she might go through, every hill, every corner, every rock, every tree. No, that would not be as helpful. It's just some general information, some key insights, some guiding principles. For example, I said to her, if you want a good trip, Drive on the coast. Avoid the fires. And she responds by saying, but we want to go to Yosemite. And I said, well, it's not on the coast, and if it's burning, don't go there. You see, out of love, God gives Israel a framework, some guiding principles, so that they can live in his presence, enjoy his presence, and not be burnt by the fires. What's the first word? Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. It's a clear, 
straightforward word. Anyone can understand it. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, it is, there is not to be to you other gods in addition to me, not even one. And when God says you, it's in the singular. He's not just saying, hey, you out there. He's speaking to each Hebrew person at the base of the mountain personally. Listen to my word. Know me. Follow me. The principle. We are to worship Yahweh as the one and only. We're to worship Yahweh as the one and only. And our relationship with him can only grow if we remain bonded to him. So Yahweh knows that we're going to worship. That's the way we are. Human beings around the world worship. That's what it means to be human. We ascribe worth to things. We trust in things. We rely on things. We cling to things. Everyone bows down to someone or something. So the scriptures offer just a consistent call to what's known as monotheism, belief in the one true God. Here's an example of it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 33. God is speaking to the people of Israel. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, that Yahweh is God, and there is no other besides him. So Yahweh doesn't acknowledge genuine rivals. We were just singing, you know, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. You have no rival. You have no equal. That goes right back to the Old Testament, back to this first word. God doesn't pretend to have a bunch of divine colleagues. He will not share his glory. Why should the people of Israel, at this point in their journey, there at the base of the mountain, decide, hey, okay, Yahweh, you are the only true God. We will follow you. How has he revealed himself to them up to this point? Well, just think about it for a minute. He has revealed himself to them to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's the one that has his hand on their story. He's the one who speaks and keeps his word. He's he's faithful to his promises. He's their deliverer. He's their savior. He, He brought them out of the house of slavery. He's the creator God. So through the exodus, through their wilderness journey, God has demonstrated that he has power over all of the elements. Sky, water, fire, wind, earth, He's demonstrated that he has power over all living things, insects, reptiles, animals, people. He's the Almighty One. He's demonstrated that he has power over all of the Egyptian gods, over the gods of the most powerful nation of earth on earth at that time, Egypt. He has revealed himself as their healer. He has promised that the people of Israel will not be afflicted by the diseases that were afflicted on the Egyptians if they follow him. He has said, hey, I'm your warrior. He's revealed himself to be their their warrior. He has fought for them. He's their provider, manna, quail, water. He's personal. He's chosen them from among the peoples of the earth. Chosen them to know him, to follow him. 
All of this he has already revealed to them. So, an obvious question. If God is so loving, so gracious, so personal, if he truly has all things in his hands, why would the history of Israel be laced with idolatry? Why wouldn't the people of Israel just accept this word as being true and live by it? Well, the Israelites, they grew up worshiping many gods. They were what's known as polytheists. Polytheism, the the worship of many gods. The Egyptians, they had gods and goddesses for everything. Gods and goddesses of of fields and, and rivers and light and darkness and sun and storm and love and war. Gods for everything. And they were worshiped. They believed in this universe that was just animated by spiritual powers. And the people of Israel grew up attached to those gods and goddesses. That was the way that they thought that they managed life. Like people around the world today, they would have looked to the gods for material blessing. They would have looked to the gods to communicate with the deceased. They would have looked to the gods to, you know, bring discernment to make decisions. They would have looked to the gods for love, for emotional healing, for physical healing, for protection from evil. This is the thing of religion around the world. Now, we may say here today, well, but we live in a new reality. Uh, we're beyond religion. We're, we're postmodern people. We don't have other gods. Well, before God, ask yourself some questions. Like, for example, Lord, this past week, whom did I trust? Lord, to whom did I cling? What did I rely on? What was my heart attached to? And in answer to that question, the Lord might answer, well, actually, you trusted in your bank account. You trusted in your insurance plan. You trusted in your pension. You actually placed your trust in another person, the government, your social position. You see, we all entrust ourselves to many different things. Before God, ask yourself, Lord, what was I most passionate about this week? What did I care about the most? Lord, where did I invest my best energies? And in answer to those questions, the Lord might say, well, actually, you were most passionate about your job, your work. You actually gave yourself most passionately to another person. We give our hearts to many things. Idolatry is very simply attaching our hearts to someone or something other than the true God. Forty years after the Exodus, people of Israel are about to enter the promised land. And Joshua has a very powerful word for them. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve 
whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua declaring that he is going to serve Yahweh. Now, the obvious question is, why would the people of Israel still have the gods of Egypt in their baggage? Why would they have not thrown them away? And of course, the same question should be asked of you and I. If we are following Jesus and believe that he's Lord over all things and truly is our Savior, why then would we at times have other gods in our baggage? Why would we be placing our trust on other people, on other things? Well, with worship comes a heart attachment, a trust. You see, the gods and their idols, they're passed on from generation to generation. They're all around us in society. And they become a part of our identity. Sometimes we don't even see them anymore. And we actually need the Lord to shine his light on us, to reveal to us where our heart attachments actually are. That's the walk of discipleship. The problem is that in order to manage life, people are already attached to many gods. And that's the dilemma of all people. In order to manage life, people are already attached to many gods. If Israel had received the first word as God spoke it to them, what would have changed? Well, immediately they would have been different from all of the peoples around them. Immediately. This first word, it was without precedent in the ancient world. No other people had ever proposed that only one true God should be worshipped, much less that the worship of other gods should be prohibited. The first word, it, it would demand of Israel just a complete change of mindset. God was not asking to lay claim of just one part of their lives, all of their lives. Yahweh is saying to them, hey, with me, it's all or nothing. Either you're all in or you're not with me. They must decide. Why is it a critical word for us? Because we, like the people of Israel, can so easily become attached to other things. And we must decide every day. Some would say, well, but we've moved beyond religion in our time. This is an old conversation. This isn't really relevant to us. No, we haven't. Human beings are as religious as they ever have been. Even atheists among us, they continue to bow to people, to things. We all worship. You might say, but hey, the world of religion, it's so complex. There are, you know, six major world religions, and then there are hundreds of lesser religions in the United States alone. There, I think it's 600 religions are recognized, and there are thousands of indigenous religions. It's so confusing. No, it's not. There are actually two camps in the world of religion. Essentially, there are two. There's what's known as monotheism, the worship of one God, and there's what's called pantheism, everything is God. Let me explain the differences. This hand will represent monotheism, this hand will represent pantheism. Over here, God is one, he's personal. Over here, 
everything is God. And this, of course, easily leads to polytheism. And so, you know, the world uh, is, is uh, considered to be alive, animated. And so you worship spirits, you worship idols, gods, goddesses. Here God is personal. Here God is just an impersonal energy that unites all things, that animates all things. Over here, God has created life. He gave life. Over here, life is just kind of a reflection, an emanation of the energy that is alive in the world. Over here, God is other. He's, he's distinct from his creation. He created the universe, but he's distinct. Over here, the material universe is divine. Over here, morality, right and wrong, it's grounded in who God is. Over here, morality is relative. Each one decides. Who knows what's right and wrong? Over here, human choices really matter. Over here, life is guided by fate. Over here, history is progressive. That means that there's a purpose to life. God has his hand on history. There's an end to it. Each individual life is of tremendous importance. Over here, history, it's just circular. No direction. Over here, God has created us to know him, to love him, to follow him, to walk in his presence. Over here, God is unknown. The future is unknown. At best, we are absorbed into a universal energy. Of course, in the one God camp, you have some major world religions like Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And there in the world of monotheism, we have to discern what the Father has revealed through Jesus. That's critical. And in the world of pantheism, well, if you would go to Europe, you have the ancient religions of Europe, paganism. You have the big isms like Hinduism and Buddhism. You have New Age movements. You have indigenous religions. You have what's known today as atheistic Western materialism. It's just a secular expression of pantheism. Those that fall into the camp of atheistic Western materialism, they worship the gods of sex and pleasure. It's so evident in our society. They trust in the gods of science, money, and power. People worship, even those who deny the existence of God. We also have people in our day, and this is not uncommon in Canada, people will say, well, but I'm just in, I'm I'm kind of working on my own path. I'm finding my way. I'm, I'm, I'm developing my own spirituality, something tailored to me, something that suits me. Inevitably, people that follow their own path, they follow into the camp of pantheism. You see it over and over again. There's nothing new. Why is following the way of human religion so dangerous? Why would God give the first word, you shall have no other gods before me? Why would he say that so clearly? Well, first, the world out there is not neutral space. This is one of the great lies of the modern day. That we can do whatever we want, experiment with whatever we want, and it's all neutral. It's not. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul Formerly, when you did not know God, he's speaking to followers of Jesus. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, 
how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? When he talks about work, weak and worthless elementary principles, he's talking about the reality of the demonic, the work of evil in our age. Paul says to these followers of Jesus, when you were following other religions, other gods, you were not following something that was neutral. You were actually enslaved to what is evil. And the scriptures are clear that Satan, his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. Secondly, when we don't know God as the one and only, as the only true God, we, we live in the world of superstition. Every day, we're guessing. It's a world of anxiety. It's a world of fear. And so when you look at Canadian society right now, you see increasing levels of anxiety as we deny our creator. Because when we deny our creator, it all comes down to us. You see people wearing bracelets, smelling aromas, reading horoscopes, practicing rituals, all in an attempt to manipulate the gods and make life work for them, manage life somehow without Yahweh, the true God. But people never know whether they have it right or not, and so they consult the spiritual gurus of our day. And if you just Google who are the most famous spiritual gurus of our day, there's a list. And everyone on the list is a pantheist. There's nothing new. Thirdly, when we worship other gods, it leads to our death. And the lie is that it won't, but it will. And the prescription that God gives is choose whom you will serve and remove the gods. That's what he's begging Israel to do in our passage. Choose whom you will serve and remove the gods that you might live. You see, if Yahweh is the only one, it follows that he should be the only one worthy of our worship. If Yahweh is truly the only one, it follows that he should reveal how we should live because he knows how he has designed life to be. Let me share a rather stark example. About a month ago, my niece and her husband, they were working on the front yard. As they were working on on the front yard, all of a sudden they realized that their second child was no longer there with them. So my niece's husband, he ran to the backyard looking for his son. And when he came up to the pool, he saw his one-and-a-half-year-old boy at the bottom of the pool. He dove into the water, grabbed his son, pulled him out, but his son was blue. So my niece, she was screaming for help. The neighbor, he heard the screams and he came running. And as he came running, he thought, okay, you've been trained to do this. You know what to do. When he got there, the boy did not have a pulse. He was not breathing. But by God's grace, he had been trained what to do. And he was able to resuscitate that boy. Retired fireman. My niece and her husband, they believe that their son, he went to the backyard and he saw his ball lying on the tarp that was covering the pool. 
So he saw the tarp holding up the ball and he thought that he could walk out to get it. But when he stepped out to get it, he stepped on the tarp and he fell below it into the water. That tarp, it's a good analogy of human religion without God. If you look at human religion without God's revelation, it's the same around the world. The names change, but it's the same spiritual dynamic. And we must choose. If we think we can go our own way, we'll find ourselves at the bottom of the pool gasping for air. If we think that we can run a marathon through the smoke-filled streets of Vancouver and live, we'll be fooling ourselves. We'll end up gasping for air and maybe die. (laughs) You know, the ten words, they're God's gift to us. God knows how he has designed life to be. God's a good father. My niece and her husband, they have since built a fence around the pool. Why? Because they're good parents. They love their children. They never want to see a child at the bottom of the pool again. That's why God gave us the framework. That's why God gave us the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Out of love. We all jump in the pool now and then, don't we? We all find ourselves in the pool of sin. None of us keep the Ten Commandments every day, every moment of our lives. We fail often. But here's the good news. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Let me stop there for just for a second. John 3, verse 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have eternal life, receive eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. The Father didn't send the Son so that we would be condemned, but in order that we might be saved through him. Jesus came as our Savior. God not only revealed himself as the one and only, the only true God. No, out of love he sent his very own Son. And Jesus revealed the Father, revealed the Father's love, gave his life for us so that we might live, paid the price for our sin, so we might be forgiven, set free, set free from bondage. If we trust him as our Savior and Lord, we become children of God, sons and daughters of the Father. We don't earn it. It's given by grace. Going back to Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've chosen to follow 
Jesus. You have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the walk of being a disciple is a walk of choosing each day. I will worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Jesus and Jesus alone. He has no rival. He has no equal. I choose to remove the gods from my life. I repent, Lord, for my idolatry, and I choose to follow you. Each day, we surrender ourselves to God. Each day, we ask that the Holy Spirit will make us holy, will sanctify us. We depend on God for this to happen because our hearts are so easily given to other gods, to other people, to other things. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, well, then the invitation is there. The Father says, choose me. I sent my son out of love for you. If you surrender to me, if you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then there is forgiveness for you. If you repent, there's forgiveness. If you turn to me, there's forgiveness. I give you the gift of eternal life. You receive the gift of being my son, my daughter, now and forever. Amen? If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, don't wait until you're at the bottom of the pool. It may be too late. Let's stand for prayer. And I want to pray two prayers in response to God's prayer. A prayer for those who may have never accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. You've been on a journey, and today is the day when you want to surrender your life. I want to guide you in a prayer. That prayer will be posted uh, on the screen behind me. And then I want to pray a prayer for all of us. So for those of you who would like to decide today to follow Jesus, pray with me. God, I desire to know you personally. Please forgive me for leading my own life and rejecting your love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I ask you to forgive my sins. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. Transform me into your likeness, Jesus. Thank you, God, for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, please Uh, Go back to the Welcome Center. There are people there that would love to pray with you. Talk to the person who brought you. Please don't go home without sharing that with someone. We would love to encourage you. And then a prayer for all of us as disciples of Jesus. Father, you are so gracious and compassionate. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. You're the almighty God. You have power over all things. You have all of history in your hands. You have this moment in your hands. You fight for us. You provide for us. You you speak and you keep your word. You're faithful to your promises. You're our savior. You have saved us from the power of the evil one. You have saved us from the power of sin. You've given us victory over death. Thank you. 
Thank you for being so personal. Thank you for choosing us, for, for loving us. Oh God, may we follow you faithfully. Shine your light on us. Show us, Lord, where our hearts are attached to other gods. Reveal to us where we trust in other gods. Father, we turn to you. We repent for sin. We choose you. When we think of Jesus, we're filled with joy. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior and Lord, our healer. Lead us forward by your Spirit. We depend on you. Holy Spirit, make us holy. Oh, God, have your way in our lives. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go with God.